passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. God willing, I came out of here unscathed. I'm in shape. I'm not, I don't believe I'm there yet, though. You know, I've just got work to do to get back to where I was. So I'm going to party tonight, celebrate, spend time with my family, and then get back into gym and train. And any one of these little melty fools can get it. Even that little fool at the desk, all of them, every single one of them can get it. does not matter. I'm back and I'm ready. Look at that fool in his blade in the house coat. They're stupid. Welcome to Post Wrestling's UFC 246 Post Show. I am John Pollock, joined as always by Phil Chairtalk. And Phil, right off the bat, I want to tell you the difference between UFC 246 and UFC 245. Because here on my chat history with you, I look back to the night of December 14th, our last show. And the words, I'm ready when you are, were written at 2.03 a.m. Eastern Time. So, Conor McGregor, say what you will about the man. Very kind to us East Coast viewers. Because we, it's not even 1 a.m. yet. I have tons of energy right now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't have uh, that much energy. Oh, you have I... plenty. You, you just wait. <laughs> you just wait until we get into Holly Holm, Raquel Pennington. You're going to have uh, loads of energy by the end of this. Okay, well, I guess I got to build myself up to that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was definitely thankful for a quick finish uh, from the Notorious One after a series of uh, lackluster uh, lead-up fights. Yeah, the way this card was going, it was Decision City on this undercard. And then the main card hit, and boom, this this had to be among the shorter pay-per-view main cards in recent memory. Yeah, thankfully we got some finishes. We got some excitement. The some of the earlier fights they weren't so terrible, but yeah, it just did nothing really grabbed your attention. There, there were much. fine fights, but there wasn't a whole lot at stake. Like these were not emerging contenders. I mean, you know, you you had a few that you can like cherry pick from this undercard, but Let's be honest. This was a card that was built around one fight, and I could argue probably this was built around one fighter. Like, this was a pay-per-view that literally was not on the schedule, and Conor McGregor held a press conference saying, I'm fighting on this day, and the UFC said, we're running a card on that day then. That's what this was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think they intended to have an event around this time, and but certainly building an event around Connor and his return after a year and nearly a year and a half off, uh, 
it, it certainly felt that way. And uh, they did put a little bit of other people on this card. Holly Holm, um, Anthony Pettis, who now in retrospect looks like somebody who they could have slotted into the main event should Cowboy have fallen out. Um, so there were some people to draw in some eyeballs, but definitely it was the Conor McGregor show tonight. So in the lead up this week, what kind of uh, excitement level do you think that this hit to the people around you? And did did this feel like a big fight, this Conor McGregor return compared to other major fights that he's been involved with? It definitely felt like a big fight uh, compared to any typical UFC event. Uh, there have been a fairly long layoff since uh, any previous UFC event. Uh People I knew who were casual fans were certainly talking about it. I'm not sure it had uh, the attention of other Conor McGregor fights, but it did have a lot of attention. Um, there wasn't the uh, bad blood and animosity that has surrounded a lot of his previous fights, but he's still been uh, in the news uh for many negative reasons throughout the last year. So he's still been on people's minds. So uh, I think people were eager to see what he was going to showcase. And there was definitely a lot of that brought up this week. It's not as though this was just simply uh, whitewashing his past, that a lot of that stuff did come up this week. And I was surprised at the level of media that Conor McGregor did this week. I mean, he did a fair amount of it beyond just what you would assume like, one big interview here or there. Like he was pretty, pretty out there this, this past week in speaking with the media and being all over the Vegas fight week this week. Yeah. It, it, there's uh, PR redemption tours that are designed to demonstrate that somebody has, you know, turned a new, turned over a new leaf. Um, or they've corrected some wrong. And then there's uh, sort of the same thing where the person has actually done that. And it seems like uh, this week was Connor doing the latter. You know, he he said the right things, but he also did the right things. He did a lot of media. He was... Uh, you know, he was committed to promoting this event in the proper way. He's committed to being a good business partner to the UFC and the television partners and to his fans. And, uh, you know, go leading into it, he said all these nice things and it was understandable that fans would be skeptical. Uh, but ultimately he proved that he was sort of being authentic. And uh, I guess time will tell if this holds. We will get into the fight in just a minute. But as you kind of look now at the totality of this whole promotion, how much of this do you feel was about Connor essentially looking at this as pretty much what you just outlined, a redemption tour, that this is me rehabilitating my image by booking this fight and presenting myself in the most positive light possible so that the narrative shifts, which has been a very negative one over the past year. Do you think that was very much a calculated move by him and his management by deciding to have this fight now and going ahead with, with this version of Connor, which was a much subdued Connor McGregor? 
Yeah, I think it was calculated in multiple ways. I think uh, the way he referred to this as the beginning of a new season, the way he uh, compared himself to LeBron James and his off-season work ethic around his health and making sure that he is an elite athlete. And so I I think that the, the fight, the opponent... Uh, the timing, the beginning of the year, um, his, all of it was part of setting himself up, not only, um, redemption in sort of, sort of like this moralistic way, but redemption from a competitive standpoint. He's showing that he's an elite athlete who can compete with the best, uh, fighters in the world. And, uh, you know, we're gonna get in the fight, but say what you want about Donald Cerrone, who's been on a downswing, you know, he people don't dismantle him that easily. No, I mean, this was we have seen Donald Cerrone falter, but never, never to me in this kind of fashion. You can look at the RDA fight that was somewhat similar to this, but to me, this this was even more um, one sided in in that sense. Uh, the performance that Conor McGregor came out with here and. I mean, there isn't a whole lot to, there's not a whole lot to break down in this fight. And in other respects, there's, there's tons to look at here. So McGregor comes out of the gate and immediately swings with the left. He does not connect. And then he starts using these shoulder strikes. And one of them just blasts Cerrone in the nose. He's clearly affected by this. His nose is busted and Connor proceeds to nail him with this head kick and drop these three left-hand bombs that drop Cerrone, and referee Herb Dean, he is giving all the leeway in the world for Donald Cerrone to recover. I would say that you, there are other fighters that this would have been called off the second he took these left hands, but Cerrone was given the chance to recover, and McGregor just upped the intensity and finished him with multiple strikes on top. Grand total of 40 seconds that this went a... Phenomenal performance by Conor McGregor. You could say a flawless performance here from Conor McGregor. It, this could not have ended better for McGregor in terms of momentum coming out of this fight and setting the stage for an enormous year for Conor McGregor and by extension, the UFC. Uh, so I'm not CompuBox or uh, who does the MMA stats, but uh, I, uh, the only thing you could say that was, wasn't flawless was he missed one shot, which was the first the shot. The first one. Of, and then he landed everything else he threw. He threw four, I think, shoulder strikes. Then he threw that head kick. He threw the left. He threw a knee, a flying knee that did land. And, uh, yeah, all those lefts. It was, it was masterful. It's the kind of performance that I think it's going to just, it, it certainly sets up Conor McGregor, not just for the multitude of potential opponents, but the potential for a very quick turnaround as well. If you're looking for Conor to come back, I don't think we necessarily have to be looking all the way to July for International Fight Week. I think if if he was adamant about fighting earlier, it's something you could certainly do because God knows he took absolutely zero damage in this. Yeah, um, I... Considering the history of Habib and Tony, maybe he stays ready for that fight. Um, uh, I could totally see that happening, even if it's very late into that sort of, uh, you know, fight promotion. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. 
Um, or, you know, there's a multitude of opponents he could face off against. Um, it's sort of like back to, you know, he's always had this sort of like landscape where he can pretty much pick whatever he wants. Um, uh, we, he, we've returned to that, uh, state status for him. Conversely, what, what does this loss do for Donald Cerrone? That was such a big discussion point going into this that Donald Cerrone, he always falters in the biggest pressure situations. And this was the, the largest pressure situation for him, the biggest fight of his career. And it was the one in which he faltered the largest. And I think that it's an interesting legacy you look at with Donald Cerrone. And there's all the accolades that this guy has achieved. But I don't think you can properly look at this guy's legacy without this this big glaring uh you know negative to his career as well of failing in these big situations and this one was a pretty pretty massive failure yeah it, it it's certainly been a pattern and uh you know not a coincidental pattern i mean they talked about it i mean he talks about it even in the promotion for this fight, they were talking about his nerves leading up to a fight and how he can't even warm up because he's so nervous. And yeah, it's going to be a stain on, um, you know, he's going to be a Hall of Famer regardless. The volume of records he he's uh, accumulated throughout his career is incredible. And in some ways, maybe it's unfair to say, you know, give him this sort of like choker status because he has had so many fight of the night performances and he has main evented, uh, many times. But yeah, when, when, when it really, really mattered for a title or, you know, this sort of like abstract title that beating Conor McGregor gives you, uh, yeah, he was not able to deliver and that will linger for with him, you know, as long as people remember him. Yeah, and it'll be an interesting path as well of what is next for him. Obviously, he is not stepping away or anything, and he is someone that he's an extremely marketable fighter, and you will have no shortage of opponents that you can find for him. Um, But but maybe like there is kind of a ceiling of the opponents that make sense for a Donald Cerrone after this. And maybe not. Could you see Donald Cerrone throwing some wins together, and all of a sudden he's back into the discussion of... uh, you know, that upper echelon of the weight division, or are we past that point with Donald Cerrone? I mean, it's certainly possible with the right matchups. Uh, he, he continues to get some impressive wins. I could totally see the UFC continuing a trend of trying to put uh, young, up-and-coming, exciting fighters against him. Um, but uh, in terms of him challenging for a title or approaching title contention, I, I just don't see it. At welterweight, he 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 really never broke through the top of the division. And lightweight, his best years were long ago. So even though he is still capable of having exciting performances and putting together wins against uh, some uh, pretty high-level fighters, I just can't see him really making a statement at the top of either division. I I don't either. I think this is the absolute departure of Donald Cerrone from big time fights. And, you know, the, the, the Tony Ferguson one, you can certainly look at that, that it was, you know, he suffered that, that, that injury. It was a doctor stoppage. Justin Gaethje just flat out stopped this guy in the first round. Conor McGregor did it that much more impressively that you have to wonder his ability as well to just 
take shots at this point. Um, this late in his career, this is his third loss in a row. It's all big opponents that he's had those losses to. But I think that this certainly takes him at least one, if not two steps back in this division and kind of relative to the level of opponents he should probably be matched with. Yeah. And I mean, look, I, obviously he loves something about martial arts, uh, the training, the, the skill, uh, you know, he would better describe it than me, of course, but it seems to really cause him a lot of anxiety, the actual fight. And like, is it worth it? Does, is that good anxiety? You know, is there a payoff to that? He seemed content at the end of the fight. Um, he's not someone that comes across, and, and I've spoken to him about this, that it's, you know, he has this anxiety about, the fights, but it's the entire process of it that he loves. Like there is an absolute love of fighting that this guy has. And I think it's the situation that's almost the lead up to it. And then that, that exits as soon as the fight begins. But I mean, on top of it, he's a notoriously very slow starter. And he was taking on a guy that is an incredibly quick starter in Conor McGregor. And that to me was a, a really, that it was, it was just to me that was going to be the telltale sign of what the first half of this opening round would look like, and we didn't even have to get out of the first minute of this fight to see what that would look like. It just he was overwhelmed here. So I mean, two guys that are going in completely opposite paths, but with Conor McGregor, it's what what is the path, the ideal path, or more realistic path for Conor McGregor in his next outing? Is Jorge Masvidal the next fight, and do you like? him staying at welterweight i don't really like him staying at welterweight i i mean i just i don't he's not a natural welterweight he's a natural 155 pound fighter um maybe he cut a couple pounds for this it didn't seem like it although he did he he, he looked massive um you know against cowboy who's uh not also typically a 155 pounder but he's fought a lot of his career at welterweight and you know size wise it was comparable but i think he's best at 155 and i think 155 is the most likely place for him to become champion again even though i don't really see how he could beat habib but uh if if it was true that he was on a bender three nights out of four uh, when he was preparing for that fight, then I guess, theoretically. Yeah, a, uh, a camp where he was just disappearing for days on end when he was in the midst of camp. It sounded like it was hardly an ideal preparation for, you could say, the top fighter in the world. And that seems to be the fighter that Dana White continues to bring up. That's the fight he wants to make which would mean waiting till the outcome of the April fight, if that should happen, or God knows what happens if there's some injury there as well. But Well, I mean, of course, because that is still the biggest fight that the UFC has ever put on. And so, uh, well, of course, they want to do a sequel to that. So, And then the alternative is, you know, Jorge Masvidal, who would be the set, you know, it, He's sort of like the biggest star outside of Connor right now in the sport. And so I would say that's the next best option if, in terms of ideal options, the goal is to make as much money as possible. Well, if you're looking at making the most money possible, 
do you want to go to the Khabib fight so quick, or do you want to do you want to pair Conor McGregor with you know similar level opponents that you can ride this wave? That this is a guy that can carry a pay per view on his own. Are we so quick to rush to that rematch where I, I think he'd be an enormous underdog in that fight? I okay, so I think. You know, the danger is you put him up against other people and he loses and it's a lot harder to put him in there against Habib. And he's... No, didn't, well, you, didn't you get the new rule I, this uh, week, Phil? You lose, that gets you a title fight. That's how that's how it works now for Jose Aldo, Yoel Romero. That's actually the secret to all of this. <laughs> well, look, I'm not... I'm not... It's not like... I'm not abject opposed to it ever happening. Um, it is a little bit odd here, but I do, I think the luster is lost a little. I, if you ask me as a fan, I don't want to see, um, the Habib Connor rematch. That's not my top, uh, priority. But if I'm the UFC, it's my top priority because you don't know what you can do with that fight in the future. And you know, right now, it'll make a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And putting him in there against Masvidal will make a lot, a lot, a lot of money. But it could uh, hamper the amount of money you could make on a Habib fight. So, uh, you know, that that's sort of what the UFC is weighing. I think the one with the most amount of value with the least amount of risk would be Justin Gaethje right now that's a good option but see i don't i don't know i think it's that it's not the biggest that's actually the reverse that's actually the least upside most risk i would say there's there's a lot less risk in that fight but it's also the it's it's probably like the least attractive of the options you have there. I think, if but that's why it's more risky because if you put him against Masvidal or Habib, let's say the odds are he loses, but you're still guaranteed to make mega, mega, mega money. If you put him in there against Gaethje, maybe he's still he's most likely to win that fight out of the three. But it's no easy fight. It's not, it's not an easy fight, but you're you're not going to have an easy fight out of any of these. I, I would say even th- th- there's no one that could have necessarily predicted a hundred percent Conor McGregor was winning this fight with Cerrone. I think the vast majority were picking Conor McGregor, but there's always you know it's still Donald Cerrone, and you're you're not going to have any just layup fights. But I think that Justin Gaethje, just given his style, yes, it presents a risk to Conor McGregor, but I think it's a minimal one in comparison to a Jorge Masvidal or a Kamara Usman or a Khabib that to me are – those are three examples that I, I don't know if I'd favor Conor in any of those fights. Gaethje, I definitely would favor. No, I wouldn't favor him. I guess I guess our sort of definition of risk is a little bit different. You're viewing the risk as like they're jeopardizing Connor losing if he loses to Habib, but it's more just about they're just trying to make as much money as possible and so if they get the goal is to get to the Habib fight and to get the Masvidal fight with Connor being as hyped as possible. And losing to Gaethje would jeopardize making as much money at those points. Well, we're, we're sort of we're quibbling over uh, shekels here. I think. Oh, I, I think we're talking about much bigger money than that. That uh, is all on the table here. I mean, there there are certainly 
so many available options. And I think it's ultimately going to come down to weight class as well. I mean, is, is what Con- do you think about him? Uh, Col- he sort of mentioned Paul Felder. He threw Paul Felder in there a little bit. That was, right? that was a strange one. Um, that to the me Irish is, dragon. You think that has something to do with it? Uh, I guess so. Um, I don't know if he's even aware that he's fighting Dan Hooker in a, in a couple of weeks, but I mean, is, is that if Connor's just looking to keep busy, I mean, you can, you can fill a schedule with the Paul Felders and the Justin Gaethje's of the world that will be more than happy to take these fights. If you're holding off on your, on your bigger fights, um, there's Nate Diaz out there as well. I mean, there's, mm. there's all these ideas you have and tonight's fight, it just opens the door for all of these possibilities now. And ultimately what, what is Connor forecasting his year to be? Is he looking to fight three times this year? And then how best do we map that out? And do you try and get him another fight and build the Khabib fight up bigger or seeing that that's the biggest fight, just go to it right away. Don't, don't risk uh, this getting detoured. How about, how about, how about, how about this? How about this? I'm going to throw this one out there. You put him versus, versus Dan Hooker, Dustin Poirier, on the Habib Tony card, I would love that fight. I, I would love Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. I think that's I, a, think, I think that's a fantastic fight. I think you do it on the same card in case somebody falls out. You slot Conor in. I mean, you know, it's logistically problematic to have them in the same venue. So I don't know if you really want to do that. I mean, this is wishful thinking. But even a, you know them doing a main event, Conor main event around that same time the next month, or you know, I like Poirier as an opponent. They have a history. Poirier has improved Dr- dramatically since that last fight. And on top of that, you could also, if Connor came out with a dynamic performance like we got tonight uh, and finished Poirier quicker than Habib did, that's like a nice little story to go into that rematch that he was able to finish Dustin even quicker. And this is the improved Connor McGregor from the one that was not adequately, adequately prepared for the first fight. So I, I actually like that fight a lot. With Dustin. Yeah, I thought it was a good even return fight option for Connor. Um, I didn't mind this cowboy option. And, I, you know, really, I don't hate the Masvidal option, but I would prefer as a, as a fight fan him sticking to 155, which is that weight class. So, so Gaethje, Poirier, uh, sure, Felder, Barbosa, you know, there's there's a lot of people in that division that would present really fun, exciting fights for Connor. So, I mean, that was uh, the major focus of uh, Saturday night's card. There were some other fights that we're going to get into as well. Uh, oh, oh, you know what time is it, John? Well, we oh, we, ju- we just like. <laughs> We just spent uh, 27 minutes talking about that main event. Uh, I could talk 27 seconds about Holly Holmes' win over Raquel Pennington. Uh, this, this that would be too long. Oh my God! Um, this fight felt too long. I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> Holly Holm won this fight by unanimous decision on scores of 30-27 twice, 29-28. If you were a fan of clinch battles, this was it. Uh, Holly Holm found a strategy within this fight of clinching with Pennington, holding her against the fence, and whenever she would get reversed, she would outmuscle Pennington to get her back there. Um, the highlight from a striking standpoint came in the second when she landed some punches to the body, and then this continued in the third round. Uh, Holly threw a head kick, more clinching, more clinching, 
And late in the fight, we got a separation by referee Jason Herzog. This was a terribly dull fight. Holly was interviewed after the fight, said she wanted to do a lot more, but this was working for her. So she continued with it. And all I will say is that there is a lesson this week with the matchmaking and who are getting title fights that, yes, it is great to get a win, but there is a large difference between being uh, a Donald Cerrone or a Nate Diaz versus a Leon Edwards, who has won eight fights in a row, and I don't think most fans could pick him out of a lineup. And this was Holly Holm doing her best Leon Edwards, in my opinion, of someone that, yes, you got the win, but there's absolutely nobody clamoring for anything involving Holly Holm uh, challenging for a title that she has already fought that champion and is kind of just in a holding pattern. Yeah, I, I do feel like Holly Holm was in a position where, you know, her back's back is up against the wall a little bit. She needed a win. Um, and she is a fair away, fair ways away from a title shot, regardless of her performance today. Now, it certainly didn't do her any favors, but, uh, you know, the memories of MMA fans are quite, uh, you know, limited. And so, you know, with an exciting performance against, uh, uh, the right opponent in a few months, and all of a sudden, she could be challenging for a title in no time. Uh, she could be. If she did something fantastic in this fight, I think there there would at least be some fanfare behind that. But um, I, I don't think I'll, I will ever think of this fight again after tonight. As will probably many people that sat through this. Uh, Alexei Olenek and Maurice Green. Uh, this one went 438 into the second round with, uh, this was actually a lot of fun, mainly for Joe Rogan and Paul Felder on commentary, who are just so captivated by Olenek. And it's always fun to watch Olenek because he is seconds away at all times from pulling off a submission. And throughout the first round, he, he worked up to get Green down onto his back and then threatened with a scarf hold. And it looked like Green was going to submit, but the round ended. So we got a second round out of this. And again, Olenek put him down into half guard, mounted him, and then set up for this arm bar that Green could not escape from. And he was forced to tap at 438 of the second round. So 42-year-old Alexei Olenek continues to be an entertaining piece of the heavyweight picture. I don't know what this guy's uh, ceiling is at heavyweight. But it's always fun when this guy's on a card. Yeah, it, it is a lot of fun, uh, despite uh, the live fans not enjoying it so much. I really uh, like it, this. It was it was captivating for me. I'm sure you yeah. enjoyed it from like oh, a I, submission I, perspective. Oh, I definitely enjoyed it. And not just the submission perspective, but there was a certain level of drama to it because for two reasons. First of all, you knew exactly what he was looking for, generally speaking. Like he's always looking to close the distance and just sort of squeeze and, and and just restrict the space that is uh that uh his opponent had and uh then there was this, there was multiple times in this fight where you would see his hands just slowly <laughs> slowly getting closer together it's like the trash compactor in star wars you know it, it, it's just sort of riveting uh suspense television so uh uh, Olenek snapped a uh, two-fight losing skid he had. He lost in 12 seconds in his last fight to Walt Harris, so uh, getting a victory here, his seventh in the UFC. 
Brian Kelleher and Ode Osborne. This was originally scheduled for Fight Pass, but then the Claudia Gadelia Alexa Grosso fight fell apart when Grosso missed weight by five and a half pounds, which was one of the more prominent fights on this card. So with that scrapped, these two got promoted to the main card, and it featured a video package where Ode Osborne uh, touted the fact that one day Conor McGregor is going to say, I was on a card with O'Day Osborne. You know, it was a pretty good line. It was and, a good line. Unfortunately, and, and, it didn't it didn't work out so well for O'Day Osborne. But I was like, I, I always enjoy someone that comes in and thinks very highly of themselves and stands out in that way. He certainly did here. Well, look, had he had a, a spectacular finish, it would have been a really impressive performance. He had a really impressive sort of opening package. He himself has seems to have a very exciting style. His personality is uh, captivating. So, uh, you know, even though he came out on the wrong end of a decision against a uh, grizzled veteran, uh, Brian Kelleher, who I got to shout out, had a really nice uh, promo at the end of this uh fight he had a like sort of nice guy you know talking about how this he was fighting for his job here and he you know it it was good stuff anyway so uh i guess that's all i have to say about that well it started with osborne he was like crouched down and just popped up and landed this right hand immediately which if this had like knocked out Kelleher would have been the most fantastic finish, including the main event on this card. But uh, Kelleher uh, weathered that punch and just took down Osborne and Kelleher just slowly uh, olinicked him. He was able to go for the guillotine and then just wrenched back into full guard and Osborne was forced to tap out at 249 of the first round. So Brian Kelleher, uh, he missed the entire year in 2019 uh, and was coming off losses to John Lineker and Montel Jackson. So probably was not overstating things that had he lost for a third time in a row here, he may have been cut. So that is that's kind of a peek into the anxiety level for some of these fighters where not only are you trying to win a fist fight with another human. But if you don't, you might also lose your job. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, maybe some of those fans who are booing, uh, they can think about that next time. Is that, is that your roundabout way of uh, backing up Holly Holmes performance? Well, look, I'm not going to tell you it's the greatest performance, but I've been to a few UFC events and I've people have booed at times around me and I just never think it's appropriate to boo. That doesn't mean I don't necessarily think it's, you know, some things may not be entertaining, uh, but I I don't know. I was actually live for Caleb Starnes versus Nate Quarry, which might be... One instance where it's fair to boot because a guy literally ran away from combat for three uh, rounds and I didn't boo. And it's, you know, I don't think it's my place. I'm, I'm not a fan when people boo fights, but I think it's perfectly acceptable if, you know, a, a fight is not entertaining to state it as such. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The pay-per-view opened up with Anthony Pettis and Carlos Diego Fajera, who was... 16-2 and two coming into this fight and had won five in a row. This was obviously a, a big name for him to really get a showcase on and occurred on his birthday, no less. He was turning 35, which is he's getting up there. 
first first round, he was able to take down Pettis, who was working from the southpaw stance. And this actually gave some unique insight. We've talked about this in the past when they have a commentator on the booth who is involved with a training partner that's fighting. And in this case, we had Paul Felder. And sometimes that can create a conflict. But I also thought Felder, he gave a lot of insight here into Anthony Pettis and his training methods and was pretty much saying, well, now that the fight's happening, I can let you guys in on all the stuff he's been working on. So I I found it to be pretty insightful. Yeah, it was definitely insightful. And it was also uh, interesting because he didn't, I mean, he certainly acknowledged that he was trying to play an objective role, but he didn't shy away from the idea that it was sort of impossible. And he let his, you know, he showed his heart on his sleeve a little bit because he was getting emotional during this fight, I found. This and the Cerrone fight, like he's very tight with Donald Cerrone. And there was a moment in that fight where you could just see like Felder was like just audibly just disheartened at, you know, Donald Cerrone faltering here. Um, so it was, it, was, it was interesting to have Paul Felder in this role as opposed to uh, Daniel Cormier or Dominic Cruz that don't have the uh, same relationships with some of these these fighters um, that they didn't have teammates on this show. Uh-huh. Uh, D- D- uh, Felder actually had an awesome line uh, at the end of the show when Connor said, uh, he said, hey, that guy in the booth over there, he can come in, that, that one in the booth yes. can come and get it. Right, can get it, and then and then you know, <laughs> and it goes to to Felder to say, "Hey, uh, you know, he's talking about you." And, and Felder's like, "Oh, for a second, I thought he was talking about Megan O'Leary." <laughs> that was a great but line. If, yeah, but if he's talking about me, then yeah, we can do that. So I thought that was like really spot on and a little, you know, it's a little risque for modern, uh, you know, broadcasting. But I loved it. I was dying. It was a good line. Uh, so Fajera won the first round, uh, just took him down, worked from side control and was landing some shots at the end, uh, and then just did the same in the second round. He was able to get Pettis down, took the back once again, and he angles to the side. This is almost more of a neck crank than it was a rear naked choke, but forced Pettis to tap out. And this choke looked really deep, and he was also turning uh, Pettis's head at this angle. 146 of the second round. I... I I was picking Fajera to win this fight. It was, uh, to sum an upset, but he actually came into this fight the favorite. So, wins his sixth fight in a row. This should propel him up the lightweight division, which is so deep with talent. And Anthony Pettis, I think the best way to describe Anthony Pettis is by just looking at his UFC record, which after tonight, do you want to guess what his UFC record is? Uh, Okay, well, I don't know. Ex- uh, 10 and 10. It's nine and nine, but you nailed it. 500 fighter. Like the inconsistency of Anthony Pettis to me is like there are moments where you see this guy knock out Stephen Thompson and you're like, this guy is one of the best in the world. And then there's other times where he just seems to be like it is such a far cry from the former lightweight champion. And it's these extremes that he lives on. He has phenomenal performances and then he has ones like this and that kind of has come to define Anthony Pettis. Yeah, I, I mean, he's, uh, you know, although throughout his career, he's had some great submission wins and has shown some sleek grappling. Uh, definitely the highest level grapplers have been a problem for him. Um, and he, he's been most exciting and effective in, um, 
fights with other kickboxers or, or guys who are going to stand up. Um, I, you know, it was a bit of a pick 'em fight for me. I was really impressed how, uh, Fajal was able to continuously get to the back. Um, but yeah, for Anthony Pettis, it's hard to see what to do next. Um, it, it, it it's, I mean, he's still a name and he's a very entertaining fighter. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them continue to put him in there, uh, in big events, but it's going to be difficult to see him challenging the top of the division anytime soon. He's sort of like in the cowboy status a little bit, not as rough, but near there. That's, that's actually a rematch I could see them going to. I mean, it would be fun. It would be a fun sort of co-main event on a fight night, or it could be a main event on a fight night. Now, I mean, Cowboy, you know, with all this exposure, I expect him to 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 be leading a card or at the top of a a pretty significant card next. Uh, then on to the prelims, uh, Roxanne Modafferi, who was a plus five fifty underdog against undefeated twenty one year old. Macy Barber and Roxanne Modafferi came in and had the the fight of her career. I thought just dominated Macy Barber. Uh, this is one I did not pick uh, Modafferi to win this one. Um, Modafferi came out. She was using her right hands. Uh, took down Barber numerous times throughout this fight. Uh, there was this left jab in the second round that began the round, sending Barber down. And that's when we first could see that she was having problems with her knee and. Uh, Modafferi would work to mount her, an- annihilating her with ground and pound, and then use this elbow that sliced open her forehead, and she is bleeding all over the place. If you tuned in just for the pay-per-view and saw the blood all over the canvas, chances are it was Macy Barber's DNA that you were seeing. Uh, I thought the second was a 10-8, and then in between rounds, there's an inspector that comes in that checks on Macy Barber's knee informs the referee, Jason Herzog, in the most calm demeanor possible. Yeah, she's got a partially torn ACL. She's fine. And that was the level of emotion that, um, first of all, Joe Rogan was just mystified by this diagnosis on site by this, this inspector that he could tell that she has a partially torn ACL. So the fight continues, and... You could see Barber just having trouble putting weight on this knee. She was taken down, and it was another round for Roxanne Modafferi. She won on scores of 30-26, and the other two having it 30-27. An enormous upset, Phil. Yeah, a big upset. Personally, I wasn't picking Modafferi to win this fight, but I did think the line was a bit ludicrous. Modafferi has nearly, I mean, 40-something pro fights, or like right around pro fights. Barber has hardly any. And if you've paid attention to Modafferi over, you know, the last couple of years, she has shown significant improvement. Yep. And she, she has a style where she just presses forward. You hit her in the face and she just sort of comes forward. And it's very hard to send her backwards. And that pressure, uh, and, and she had through hands in this fight too. Yep. Um, and, uh, so I, I thought it was a really good performance, uh, from her and, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, within the UFC, the combination of moving to Las Vegas and also fighting at flyweight as opposed to bantamweight when she was part of that tough season, 
Um, you, you've just seen her really come together, and you don't often see that with fighters who are... She's 37. She is 16 years older than Macy Barber, and you don't typically see fighters mature like that that late in their career that they're developing and improving, which Roxanne Modafferi certainly has over the past, I would say, three years. And this was kind of a culmination of that. This was an incredible win, and I think we we all were kind of, you know, really deep on Macy Barber and I think had to kind of cool the brakes here on her as well. I mean, she's only 21 at this point, still has a, a ton of upside, but I think this is going to, you know, hopefully she comes back from this and can take something from this loss. Yeah. I mean, she'll, she'll definitely have to have to, I mean, firstly, I mean, I like this, notion that she was going to be the youngest champion in UFC history was just completely absurd to me. Like who is she beaten versus who does she have to beat to make that happen? And who she has to beat is it's just not conceivable. So, I mean, you know, young prospect, let's get excited. Let's give her the right fights. I think it was a fine fight. She wasn't able to get the win. She showed toughness hung in there. You know, let her heal up. Nasty injury. I got. I, it could be really bad. But uh, you know, there's a lot of time for her to develop. Definitely. Yeah, I think that this, in the long run, will be a benefit for her because if she had won this fight, honestly, I could see her in her next fight being paired with someone in the top five, and she would have been the kind of fighter that they would have rushed to fight Valentina Shevchenko that she is absolutely not ready for. So I think this loss is actually a good thing for her, that it will at least bring everyone back down to earth because I just think it would be insane to be talking about her uh, anywhere near a Valentina Shevchenko. And I think they would have rushed her towards that because, I mean, my God, they, they've got Caitlin Chukagian challenging her for the title. Like, they have no contenders, at least viable ones, that I think it would have been very easy for them to just go with this story of the youngest champion in history going for this title. Absolutely. And I mean, Dana White pretty much even admitted as much this, this uh, week he was, he sort of presented with this idea, you know, what if Barber fought for the title at some point this year, look at the landscape. And he said, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's quite possible. So thankfully it's, it shouldn't be possible anymore. And, uh, hopefully her knee's okay. Cause that was pretty gruesome. And yeah, she can, she can bounce back. Cause she did show a lot of toughness in this fight. There was, there was a lot of outs. There were outs in this fight. We should put the asterisk though. We have not watched the press conference yet. And maybe Dana White scored this fight for Macy Barber and <laughs> she could end up with the title fight. So let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Anything's possible. Andre Feely versus Sadiq Youssef at featherweight. This first round was awesome. This was, I think, the best round on this entire card. It was tremendous. Uh, Yusuf immediately came out and was nailing him with some power shots, hit him with this right hand and a jab, but then Feely got several takedowns, but Yusuf was able to get back up. They had this enormous exchange at the end of the round, and Feely got one more takedown, and Yusuf threatened with a Kimura but lost it. Just uh, a terrific opening five minutes. In the second, it was Yusuf controlling him from side control and then mounted him uh, up until the end of the round. And then in the third, it was Yusuf slowing down significantly. Uh, Feely also switched over to southpaw stance and had a lot more success standing. So I had a 29-28 for Yusuf, as did all three judges. But a fun fight between these two. 
Yeah, I had it the same way, and I thought it was a fun fight up until the third when Yusuf decided to take it off. I don't really know why he did that. I mean, I guess just because he was coasting uh, to a win. Um, but he was pretty impressive. I thought in the stand-up, uh, he, he had, he didn't really show too many kicks, but his, his, uh, striking was really nice and he showed a really nice disciplined high guard, uh, when he was in, you know, sort of like, uh, weaving into a striking range. And then he showed tremendous top control and, uh, grappling ability against a very good grappler in Philly himself. It's just the third round was a little bit lackluster on what otherwise would have been a really fantastic performance. Yeah, and to me, the first round was close enough that I would not have been banking on being up two rounds going into that third if I was Yusuf. And I don't know, maybe maybe he had just exerted a ton of energy and didn't have a lot left in the third. But um, yeah, to me, it was this was not a not a fight that I could have guaranteed being up two going into that third round. And Andre Feely, he's to me someone that has quietly improved greatly, um, although didn't get the decision here. Tim Elliott versus Askar Askarov was our next fight at flyweight. And this saw the two split rounds in the first and the second. And then in the third round, uh, Tim Elliott in the second had a lot of success with these hip throws. He tossed Askarov three different times. And in the third round, with everything uh, tied up, Askarov is tagging him with these right hands. So Tim Elliott thinks, you know what? You know what's going to win me this fight? I'm going to put my hands down and just let this dude tee off on me. And that's what Askarov did. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, a, it was, I, I, I think I get the idea of what he was trying to do. He was trying to lure him in to sort of, you know, counter him so he could hit him with another throw. But yeah, it wasn't a good look to go into the last round of a fight taking shots to the face. You know what, you know what he should have told Tim Elliott? Askarov and you shall receive. And that's what he got. A litany of shots here in this third round. And Askarov won the third round. I just thought this was such a bizarre strategy for Tim Elliott that did not work out to whatever he had planned. Um, for two judges, it really didn't matter because they gave uh, Askarov all three rounds and one had it 29-28. I had it 29-28. I gave Elliott the second round, but you could certainly argue that Askarov just uh, ran the table. Yeah, I actually had Askarov with the 10-8 in the first, and then I gave him the second. I did not give Elliot the third, but I did give Elliot the third, uh, oddly enough, not despite the odd strategy. But I thought he was actually – the the calf kicks were adding up, and uh, Askarov was slowing down. Um, but uh, Askarov was able to dig deep and not uh, let the calf uh, cause too much problems. And anyway, he got a pretty good win. I thought he looked impressive in this fight. I, I want to see him again. I, I thought so too. Um, yeah, Askarov, Askar Askarov, great name. If you want a villain in a Bond movie, <laughs> uh, we had Drew Dober and Nazrat Hakparast, who would be the villain um, accompanying Askar Askarov potentially uh, at 155 pounds. This one only went a minute ten. Uh, Joe Rogan was very confused at the line on this one because Drew Dober was a plus 260 underdog. And I would agree on this one. Guys won four of his last five. And to me, I I mean, I don't typically look at odds going into fights, but I would have favored Drew Dober in this fight going in. Um, there's this left hand that lands flush and puts Hack Parast down. And then Drew Dober proceeded. I, I watched this 
I replayed this and counted. He hit him with 11 unanswered shots until referee Mark Smith finally stepped in and saved Nazrat Hakparast. This ended at 110 of the first round. So Drew Dober gets the knockout victory and has now won five of his last six. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, it definitely lasted a little bit too long with the extra shots there. Um, I, the line was confusing to me too. I mean, I wasn't familiar with Nazrat going into this fight, but I'd seen Drew Dober plenty of times and he's looked very good recently. Um, so yeah, to see him come in as, as, uh, you know, such a significant dog, you know, it's like, oh, uh, Hakparat must be really good. And turns out, no, he really wasn't, or at least he didn't show it in this fight because he got outmatched. Uh, Nazrat was short on everything he threw and Drew just pretty much just smashed him. So, uh, yeah, I don't know where that, where that line came from. Apparently Germany, cause he's like, he's big in Germany. You're big in Japan. He's big in Germany. And then on Fight Pass, we had uh, two fights go to the decision. Uh, Alexa Kamor defeated Justin Ledette by unanimous decision. Uh, Kamor uh, trains uh, with Stipe Miocic, who they showed in the crowd cheering him on. He's a 24-year-old that's only had five pro fights. He's 5-0 and and then one on the Contender Series. And, like, you could see in this fight, like, he, he might not... It, well, I should say in a in a prior generation he wouldn't have been UFC ready, but today I think the the net uh is cast a bit longer. And you know, he was very unconventional and just throwing these bombs and there was the fear that man this guy's just going to gas out by the end of the first, but he really didn't. He he kept up a good pace and Justin Ledet, he was almost like waiting for this guy to get tired and all of a sudden it's the third round, you're down two rounds and Justin Ledette, to me, just couldn't really get anything going. He was never able to get into the next gear. He landed some left hooks here and there. Uh, but to me, it was Alexa Kamor winning all three rounds here. And it turned out his, his strategy worked fine because he wasn't against an opponent who was really going to pressure him or force him into you know paying for any of these uh, mistakes that didn't really turn out to be all that costly. Yeah, uh, Kimura looked really exciting early, throwing some, uh, pretty, um, demanding spinning attacks. Um, and it did look like he was going to tire and he did tire. I did actually give Ledette the second round because he did hurt, um, Kimura, uh, at one point and sort of stumbled him. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of action in these rounds, but Kimura hung in there. I was, I was actually, like, I do think it, you're correct that, uh, Kamur showed he was really green and he was not, you know, uh, he definitely lacks experience, but I was pretty surprised at his fight IQ. Despite being tired, he was able to create the right situations to gain his, his, his composure and rest when he needed to. And he was able to land in the right situations and put himself in the right situations to land. So even though, um, you know, it wasn't the prettiest of performances, um, it was promising. And honestly, if you're a five and zero fighter that is relatively green among you know high level MMA, light heavyweight is kind of the division where you can uh, I won't say coast, but you can be paired with guys that are going to be you know this isn't like 155 pounds for instance. This is maybe the division that you can get by um until you get into the that kind of upper echelon top you know eight nine guys. Yeah, it's it, it's sort of like, you know, 
it's a double edged sword because you you can sort of build yourself up through guys who are maybe not at the same elite level, but then at some point is going to be a big step up. Um, so we shall see. I mean, there's lots of time. He's very young, uh, but lots of promise, and uh, I look forward to seeing him in the future. And that takes us to the main event: JJ Aldrich versus Sabina Mazo. That kicked off the night uh, on Fight Pass at 125 pounds. Uh, we had. I, I had this 29-28 for Mazo. I saw a lot of people had this for Aldrich, and I think it really came down to how you scored the second round. In the first round, it was J.J. Aldrich just landing counters, and I thought was the faster of the two, and just timing her her strikes much better. In the second round, it was Aldrich that was winning this round, but what swung it for me was Mazo just busting her in the face with this uh, knee strike from the clinch and then following up with a nice head kick. And I just thought those were the most significant strikes of the round. And then in the third, I thought this was a definite round for Mazo because once she introduced this tie clinch in the second, she realized that's a good strategy. And she used it significantly in this third round to attack Aldrich. So I went 29-28. Did you agree or disagree? Sure. Do you remember this fight? I do. It happened. Unfortunately. It, it happened. And that <laughs> was that was UFC 246. Uh, we have a few notes here. Uh, for the bonuses, we had... Mm. Uh, it looks like it was all performance bonuses given out and no fight of the night. So we had bonuses going to... Oh, thank God. Conor McGregor got a $50,000 bonus. So he, he'll be okay. He'll be taken care of. He, you know, not that long ago, he didn't have a pot to piss in. Well, now he can have a whole line of pots that he could put out with his name on them. <laughs> Alexei Olinick, Brian Kelleher, Diego Ferreira, Andrew Dober, all getting performance bonuses. So congratulations to them. And what else here? Um, this is from uh, Aaron Bronstetter at TSN. Dana White says that he won't doubt Conor McGregor when it comes to fighting at 170 pounds in the future, but he still would like to make the rematch with Khabib next should he beat Tony Ferguson. So looks like Dana's really clinging to the rematch. I mean, look, his job is to make as much money as possible. That was the biggest that's fight. That's the fight to make then. Yep. Yeah, that's so... Quickly... Um, I want to get some of your thoughts on some of the fight announcements that we got this week. It's going to be Israel Adesanya and Yoel Romero on March the 7th. And then we've, it is not official yet, but Dana White has acknowledged that they're looking at putting together Henry Cejudo and Jose Aldo for the bantamweight title. Uh, starting with Adesanya and Romero, because uh, Paulo Costa is hurt. So he was the logical contender, but he's not around. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I mean, I don't, I don't, have an objection to a guy fighting somebody who's not, you know, the next contender. I don't need, need that. Like, you don't always have to fight the guy who's right next to you in the rankings. Um, and, uh, Romero has been really close in his title fights. My only problem with this is just, can Romero make the weight? He struggled to make that championship weight in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not so much the matchup. I think that's fine. Um, so uh, that's okay, but can R Romero make the weight? And, and I'm excited to see that fight. I like the fight too. I mean, when you're looking at, to me, it's not like we have this log jam of contenders at middleweight and you're just grossly bypassing the line to put this fight together. It's, 
Like largely, you're lo- like who are you looking at? Paulo Costa's hurt. Uh, up until this week, Jared Cannonier was booked to fight Robert Whitaker. So I can imagine Jared Cannonier uh, might be upset about this because not only has he lost his opponent, but the guy's won three in a row. But uh, I don't think so. He doesn't seem to get upset. You ever seen him in interviews? <laughs> he's so zen. Well, it's just like, maybe uh, he, he's holding it all in. But uh, it's all those crystals. It's all those crystals that he's carrying around with him. You've seen him lately. He's got these crystals. But that's like get at middleweight. I mean, what you're gonna give? Like Darren Till a title fight after like one win over Kelvin Gastelum probably not. Um, so I, I really don't mind this. I I'm interested in seeing Adesanya and Yoel Romero. I am. I, I get why they're going with, with Jose Aldo. I have more of an issue with that one because you do have contenders at bantamweight, but Jose Aldo is the biggest name you have. But I just didn't think that it was like this outrageous decision that. Marlon Marias beat Jose Aldo. So, I mean, I get why they're doing it, but um, what, what, how do you feel about that one? Yeah, that one's a little bit odder. I mean, I'm not even so concerned about Aldo necessarily getting a title shot at bantamweight. Um, I, I do feel like Jan and uh, Sterling are, you know, more deserving. And certainly Marias is, you know, he just beat Aldo. <laughs> I mean, he just beat Jose Aldo. It's like, and, um, I, and I don't think that's like a crazy, like both of us thought that, did you score it for Marias? I did. I can't remember what your score was. but I did score it for Marias, but I didn't. Uh, it was I close. Did, it was a very yeah, close fight. Yeah, yeah. Like I just, uh, I didn't subscribe to this idea that just because he was moving backwards, he could have win. I mean, uh, Leota Machida, you know, and Anderson Silva made a career out of that. So uh, uh, anyways, but it's not the worst fight. Um so I guess it's fine. I'm nice. Well, uh, the UFC comes back next weekend. They've got a fight night card in Raleigh, North Carolina, headlined by Curtis Blades and Junior Dos Santos. And the next time Phil and I will get together is in a couple of weeks on February the 8th when the UFC is in Houston. And here's a look at the main card. We have opening up the pay-per-view is Derek Lewis, Ilya Latifi, Mursad Bektik versus Dan Ige. Juan Adams versus Justin Taffa, and then two title fights. Phil's favorite, Valentin Shevchenko versus Caitlin Chukagian, and then John Jones versus Dominic Reyes. Yeah, um, this looks, you know, the top two fights certainly look like showcase fights for the champions. Um, but uh, Dominic Reyes is no joke, uh, but... You know, I, I actually sort of liked what John Jones said in the promotional video for this, how he, at this point in his career, he's trying to amass these records that will never um, be beaten, you know, sort of like these Tom Brady-esque uh, records. And I think that's a good mental approach. That's how you can motivate yourself as you compete against these guys who don't have the same drawing power as some opponents that you've had in the past, like Daniel Cormier or, uh, you know, Shogun Hua. I'm actually really intrigued by this fight. Uh, this is not a stellar card on paper, but to me, this John Jones fight with Dominic Reyes, I think that Tiago Santos fight makes this a lot more captivating because that was an extremely close fight with Tiago Santos, who was a mess uh, health-wise by the end of that fight. And, I mean, Dominic Reyes, to me, is like a real contender for Jones that I'm more interested in this 
after that Tiago Santos fight than I would have been a year ago where I think the disparity would have been that much greater. So I'm at least curious to see was John Jones, was that just an off night against Tiago Santos or is this going to be a very competitive fight that we get? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, John Jones just, I always find he fights at the level of his competition. Mm-hmm. So the fact that San, the fight versus Santos or the fight versus, um, who, who was it? Smith was so competitive, was quote unquote competitive. You know, it does, it, that doesn't really shock me. And I, and I just don't see what tools Reyes has <coughs> to defeat Jones. I mean, people talk about his length, but Gustafson had length, but, we shall see. I mean, he's undefeated, and uh, it is an intriguing matchup. Well, one matchup uh, that I- I'm looking forward to on this is uh, could be fire here is uh, Mursad Bektik versus Dan Ige. Uh, both of these guys have looked really tremendous, and uh, they're on the main card here, and uh, very technical, uh, good fighters. And I-, I think that could be a really stellar uh, showcase. I'll say after tonight, we had two fights this week fall out of this pay-per-view. So we were supposed to have 13 fights. We ended up with 11. 11 is my ideal fight length for a card. I think 11 is a good number. I just, I mean, less. I just need less. Well, I don't well, need I, so much. I, don't I, know what I am the number too. Is, Listen, the if they number. were to tell me tomorrow eight fights, I'd be over the moon. But we're not going to go ever to that low amount of time because we have all these guys under contract and we have to offer them all these fights so we get these marathon shows but i mean if we had had this this fight card as it was constructed tonight we could have been tacking on another hour at the beginning of this show well thankfully you know thankfully grasso you know can't put a sandwich down and uh you know at least a couple fighters were removed and then what else got knocked off the card? Well, at the beginning of the week, uh, Chas Skelly and Grant Dawson were supposed to be fighting on this, and I believe Dawson had to withdraw due to an injury. So that that fight fell apart at the beginning of the week. So we would have had two extra fights on this card. Back to see Pacey then for Dawson. And then we would have been saying, hey, at 2.03 a.m., hey, I'm ready to go. Instead, look at this. You said you didn't have any ener- any energy. Phil, I, I feel like right now you could be just bursting through the roof at this point. I was looking for an out, John. You didn't give it to me. I'm sorry. I missed it. Just a big swing and a miss. Well, on that note, we're going to say goodbye to everybody. That's the end of our UFC 246 post show. Phil, it's our first one of the year. Well, I think it went well. Hopefully... Um, you know, uh, we get more of these that feel great that, you know, maybe the UFC can do something about these, these events. Next week's event starts at eight o'clock, the main card. Uh, it does. Yes. Let's take a look. Let's just skim through the, we also have RDA against Michael Chiesa next weekend. That's a good fight. That is a really good fight. That's an important fight for Chiesa. Yeah. So those are your top two. Um, the rest it's uh, Nick Lentz is fighting Arnold Allen. And then we've got, it's a fight night card after that. But the top two, Sarah McMahon is fighting way down here against Lena Landsberg. Two, two women that have headline cards in the past. Yeah, Angela Hill is above uh, Sarah McMahon. So I guess I don't know what that says about, you know, how the UFC views Sarah McMahon right now. All right. Well, uh, are you going to be checking out that card next weekend? Um, 
I am going to probably put on some fights. I'm going to be home. I've got my daughter with me that uh, weekend, so I'll, I'll be around. So I'll definitely check out the main event. I, you know, Rafael Dos Anjos versus uh, Michael Chizé is a very good fight. Uh, Dos Santos versus Blades. I don't know about that being a good fight, but uh, if Dos Santos can avoid the takedown, then I mean, we're probably going to see a knockout. There's also a Bellator card next weekend. We got uh, Julia Budd versus uh, Chris Cyborg, Justino. And oh, the, okay. the Bellator card might actually be even more interesting. It's one of their, it's one of their better cards uh, next weekend. They've got that, uh, Cyborg's debut. Uh, Sergio Pettis is making his Bellator debut on that card. Aaron Pico is fighting. So some interesting stuff on the, on the Bellator front. Maybe the bigger question, is Phil watching the Royal Rumble next weekend? I will not be watching the Royal Rumble next weekend. I mean, at least unless like something happens spontaneously. Um, does the Royal Rumble always happen on the weekend before the Super Bowl? Did they time it like that? It, yeah, they usually specifically have it in between the uh, AFC NFC Championship games and the Super Bowl. So in that mi- that week in between is when the, they try to target the Rumble. Okay, is it is it a good rumble? Is it supposed to be good? What's the story going into it? It's the rumble. Um, big story going in. Uh, Brock Lesnar is going to be number one, and he's going to try and run the table in the rumble. Oh, okay, that's is that and, unusual because he's known for having a light schedule, right? That's sort of like a like that means he'd be like potentially that's like a sixty minute fight, isn't it? Or match? Uh, he'll probably be in there for a while, and then the story will be. Whoever eliminates him will probably be his WrestleMania opponent because they got to set up. Got, they they got to set up a mania program for him. Is there a leading front runner on the Raw side? It's probably you're looking at uh, Drew McIntyre as a possibility. Uh, they're heating up Alistair Black as is. well. Yeah, these these are these are newer either. names uh, that that are out there. Um, those are those are two of the uh, the projects that they have on Raw that they're trying to. Get up and up and running. Unless they do something out of left field for Brock. So I mean, I, so these names that you're mentioning, they're not trying to set them up as to go over Brock. Then it sounds like they're not like that level of star. So then, who's like the big star that they're pushing in? You know, who's like the main event of WrestleMania? I guess who's like the big the big cheese right now? Right now, it's the thing is this year there's not. Like your big teases at all, like the WrestleMania card. It's like usually from television. At this point, you can see the major directions they're going in. Probably you you can probably see Roman Reigns getting geared up for Bray Wyatt. Um, although that's not to me like a very. Can, can, can I make an observation? I mean, this is you know this could be off pace, but you don't know any if, of these people. Well, I do know Bray Wyatt. Okay. Um. Uh, who else did you mention? I, 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 I did recognize a couple names, but that, that's not the point. I feel like at this point, and you correct me if I'm wrong, WWE and particularly WrestleMania, the main event of WrestleMania is WrestleMania. Yes. It's like this, it's this Americana iconic event, and it's really just sort of like a celebration of the WWE universe. And that is really what it's about. And so it's more about just getting their biggest stars on that event and platform. Cause I don't know, like that 
as far as I know, there's no mainstream transcendent star in the WWE right now who's able to captivate, um, you know, a large degree of like the casual audience, like a Hulk Hogan rock or uh, John Cena did, uh, Austin did back in the day. Yeah, I would say now, right at this moment, it feels like that's what WrestleMania feels like this year, that it's largely drawing from within as opposed to bringing in uh, someone major, unless they have something that's they're keeping very quiet that they are going to play. That's what it feels like this year for WrestleMania. And that's largely like last year. They they sold out WrestleMania and it the tickets go on sale. There's no matches announced. You're really just buying it off of the name of WrestleMania and knowing you're going to get all the stars on that show. And that's kind of what the appeal is of WrestleMania now. It's just it's exactly as you outlined. And it's a longer show than the UFC, right? It's comparable. Yeah, it's comparable. Oh, my goodness. I mean, when you think about it, like we sat down tonight at 7 p.m. This was a shorter show. Still went till, what, one thirty? Well, I should say 1230. Yeah, don't remind me. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So we still went six and a half hours tonight. And that's about what WrestleMania will be. But I feel UFC is paced so much better. Like you can, you have downtime between fights. It's not like it's it's just constant. Uh huh. All right. Well, those are my observations on the pacing of UFC. So, Phil, thank you as always for joining me. I always appreciate it. We'll be back after UFC 247. Uh, we'll either be talking about John Jones' latest victory or Dominic Reyes, the new king of 205 pounds. Yeah, I think we're only gonna be talking about one of those things. I guarantee we'll only be talking about one of those things. I think we should probably only, you know, even possibly consider one of those things. Well, uh, that's a bold prediction, Phil. Is it bold? Is it really bold? <laughs> we will find out, everybody. February, whatever date it is, February the 8th, Houston, Texas, UFC 247. We will be back with a post show that night. In the meantime, you can go check out postwrestling.com. Phil, what do you have going on? What, what, what do you want to promote? Um, I actually don't have anything to promote. Uh, what's like what's your favorite podcast? And I know it's not me, so. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I love it. It's not you. you uh, yeah, you're, you're damn right. Uh, actually, my favorite podcast, uh, I have two that I really like. I like this one called Artificial Intelligence. Okay. It's with Lex Friedman. He's a professor of artificial intelligence at MIT, and he discusses uh, that topic. But he also discusses other topics in science and nature and philosophy. And uh, it's a, he has really amazing guests. And then... Um, another, uh, topic, uh, two, I'll mention two more, uh, podcasts. Go for it. Uh, there's this, uh, one I really like also on a science tip. Uh, it's a pretty popular podcast. I just want to make sure I got the name right so that, uh, I, uh, yeah, it's called Mindscape, Sean Carroll's Mindscape. Sean Carroll is a physicist. Uh, I believe he's at Caltech University and he really does quantum physics and, and he also has a bunch of different scientific philosophical guests on to discuss science and the nature of the universe. And then, uh, this other one is called Making Sense with Sam Harris and he's a bit of a philosopher and thinker and he talks about consciousness and the nature of 
morality and all sorts of things like that. So those are the top three podcasts that I've been listening to right now. And of course, with Joe Rogan, always listening to Joe Rogan, like the rest of the world. I actually listened to one of, to one of his shows this week. I listened to the one with Bill Maher. Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah, I did. I haven't gone to that. I listened to the one with Downey Jr. I thought that was pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I like Rogan. He, he, you know, he, he's really great. And what he does with the podcast, it's really awesome how he's not just, you know, interviewing a bunch of entertainers and comedians. He's, he's diving deep on, you know, hard topics sometimes. If you listen to the Bill Maher one, make it to the end because they get into like this passive aggressive argument where Bill Maher is trying to get Joe Rogan to come on his show and Rogan is stating that he watches his show all the time, and then Bill Maher kind of calls him on a few examples uh, of him clearly not being familiar with the format of the show, even though I kind of uh, lean towards Rogan giving a fairly accurate description of his show. But it's just funny as they're just going back and forth, and they're trying to be polite, but they're both kind of getting on each other's nerves at the end of it. Or at least that was my perception of it. So maybe you can check that out if you make it to the end Rogan has a few of these episodes where the they go a little way too long and he gets in these arguments. He had this really there was an interesting podcast he had earlier this year. Um uh, I think the name of the guest was Neil Blomkamp. I might have that name wrong, but he's a philosopher who's talking about simulation theory. Actually, that might not be the right person who was on it. But anyway, the topic was simulation theory and this person was discussing it and uh, towards the end of the discussion, Joe was just not listening really to the argument, and the two of them were just in this circular argument, and they couldn't get out of it. And it was just like 30 minutes of cruel, cruel radio, <laughs> much much like this might be to some of our listeners. No, not at all. We could go another hour. There's no, there's nothing circular about us. We're all, oh, I'm we're glad you said forward. that. I'm glad you said that, John. So I'll, I'll crack open the Red Bull. Let's go. What's the next topic? Uh, it's going to be uh, chatting all about artificial intelligence with uh, Lex Friedman and off-air Phil and I are going to dissect the latest episode from Ayana Howard on human-robot interaction and ethics of safety-critical systems. So, Oh, that's a new one. I haven't listened to that one yet. Hour Jeez, and 40 oh minutes. <laughs> so uh, you can go download that, everybody, and we'll give you our thoughts on this after UFC 247. Good night.